You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, before we uh, jump back into our study of the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Gospels in the New Testament are just biographical works on the life of Jesus, and we will, uh, as I said, be again in the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke this morning in chapter 5. But I want to let you know, for those of you who have been actively attending Lost Mountain for a while uh, and are followers of Jesus but haven't made that step into covenant membership, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to do that or to at least come next Sunday from 4 to 7 to our next membership class and learn what membership is all about here. Um, it's a, to, to be frank and honest with you, it's a dangerous thing uh, to your soul to regularly attend a church professing to be followers of Christ that you will not join. There's some kind of disconnect or problem there. So we'd love to invite you just to come and to hear what membership is all about. Uh, we know some of you are ready to come. You're ready to cross that line uh, and to become members. And so we're excited to see you there four to seven next Sunday here. Um, child care and dinner is provided, so you don't have to worry about any of that. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at two encounters that Jesus has with individuals who outwardly, obviously need a, a touch of his power in their lives. Outwardly, obviously need a touch of his power in their lives. And we're going to look at um, it from different points of view. Sharon and I, my wife and I took a humanities class in undergraduate called Survey of American Film. Um, it sounds dorky, but it actually was a really fun class. Very, very interesting. It was the, the most interesting of the least interesting humanities that were offered. Uh, so it was, a, I think, a Monday night seminar class. So you had like three hours to try and stay awake on a Monday night. But one of the things they talked about in there was when uh, shooting television or shooting movies in, particularly, in particular, you want to be aware of each view or each perspective that a camera angle has, each POV or point of view. And so when you see Jesus encounter people, one of the ways that we prayerfully put ourselves before God and ask Him to bring the written Scripture alive in our life is to put ourselves in the positions of different people in the encounters that Jesus has. So we're going to try and do that this morning. Let's look, first of all, beginning of verse 12. I'm going to read 12 through 16 of Luke chapter 5. 12 through 16 of Luke chapter 5. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately 
the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we sit before you this morning. God is your people, called by your grace into a redeeming relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we sit before you this morning as men and women in need. Father, as people who are still impacted by sin, still marred by sin, God, still tempted and drawn to sinful actions and sinful thoughts. God, we sit before you this morning as wounded individuals. So, Lord, I pray and I ask that wherever each one of us is this morning, God, in your tender mercy, would you meet us there? Give hope where there's discouragement. Give healing where there are wounds. God, give encouragement where there's a sense of despair. And Father, for those among us who've never yet come to understand their own sinfulness before you and the beauty and the power of the gospel, the good news that's offered them through Jesus Christ, I pray that this morning that would change. God, this morning that you would see fit in your sovereign goodness to save sinners. God, and to sanctify the saved. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, Jesus encounters this leper. What's interesting here right off the bat is that Jesus, or Luke has already mentioned to us that Jesus has healed people of all kinds of ailments and sicknesses. Yet, from time to time, Luke sees fit under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of God, to highlight specific encounters that Jesus has. This is one. Jesus is teaching in one of the towns, as he said he was going to do when he um, uh, left Capernaum and said, I've got to go, I've got to go because I've got to uh, continue preaching and teaching in other towns and other places, for that is why I was sent. That's what he's doing. And a man comes who was covered with leprosy. Now, we know that for first century Jews, uh, the word that, that we use for leprosy covered a wide range of skin afflictions. Uh, they weren't sure what was this and what was that. So it was all leprosy to them until it wasn't. It all made you unclean. It was not uh, necessarily what we refer to as Hansen's disease today. But Luke is making very clear that what this man had was indeed leprosy. It had covered his entire body and it was in a sense a death sentence. There was no one in their day and nothing in their day that could heal it. And many of you who are Bible students know that 
with leprosy, with a condition like that, you were considered unclean and you were put outside of all human fellowship, really. You could obviously associate with other lepers to a degree, but that was it. You'd been put outside of your family. You'd been put outside of your faith community. You'd been put outside of town. There was no place for you in society. Can you imagine the courage that it took this man with his body covered in leprosy, pores that were oozing, bandages wrapped all around him, clothing, obvious signs that he was sick and unclean by standards of his society. would have to yell that out as he passed people. Making his way to this place where he'd heard there was a man who might have a touch of power for him. There was a man who might hold out hope for his own special form of sickness. And he gets there, and you can imagine people backing away immediately as he walked up to Jesus. You know, we know that it it takes a certain amount of courage just to come to a new church. Nothing like the courage that it took this man to come to Jesus But we know part of why we do what we do and want to do it better in regard to signage and greeting and other things is to help bring down the walls for people that are are coming, that the Holy Spirit is drawing in. And it takes all the courage they've got to drive onto campus and come into a new church where they've never been. This man makes his way to Jesus And then verse 12 tells us that he saw Jesus and he fell with his face to the ground. I wonder when the last time was that you were desperate enough for a touch from Jesus that that was your physical posture. Now, I know some of you, you're like, look, I would do that. But pastor, you got to understand getting up would be something else. Right, It's more a matter of rolling until someone arrives to help me. So I understand that and the Lord does that. But I wonder when the last time it was that you felt the same amount of urgency to put yourself in a position of humility before Jesus that this man felt. And the text tells us that he begged him. And he made basically two statements. He said, Lord, if you can... Or if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. There's a statement of faith there and there's a statement of doubt there. There's an expression of confidence and an expression of humility. He, he goes ahead and states, and rightly so theologically, you can make me whole. I know that you can, you can clean me. You can cleanse me. You can heal me from what I'm dealing with. You can make me clean. But there's also a statement of doubt. Lord, will you? If you will. I don't know if anyone's ever told you, but it's good, right, and proper, and natural 
that a degree of faith and doubt live together in our lives as human beings. I mean, how many of you in your own life would say you've prayed for things at times where your conviction was, Lord God, I know you can do this, but I don't know if you will. I know you can. And I want to be very careful here because I I think on one hand, much of our prayer life today lacks a kind uh, of power and conviction because of the single time that we see the statement used, if it be your will, but your will be done, not I, of Jesus in the garden. We tend to cover every single prayer with that. And it's good to have that humility. But God also expects us to come to him with confidence and joy and simply ask for what we want. And here's this man asking. And he says, I know you can make me clean if you are willing. You know, there always have been and exist today all kinds of of versions of healing ministries in the Christian life and tradition. And one of the most dangerous concepts we hear, and I know that many of you have heard this, is the idea that in order, in order to be healed or in order to to have God answer your prayers, you must have the faith that you will be healed or even in its most extreme measure that you have already been healed. And that if you pray and pray and pray and you're not healed, it is because you have not had enough faith that you would be healed. Friends, prayer doesn't work that way. No amount of faith obligates God to do anything. You and I simply can't see as God sees. We can't understand as God understands. But Scripture tells us over and over and over that He is good, that He is love, that he is merciful, that he is just, that he is tender and compassionate. So however he's answering your specific prayers, you have to know the answer I'm getting is the right answer. And it's coming from a tender, compassionate, good and loving God who knows all and sees all. And if I could see as he sees, I would answer my prayers as he's answering them now. This is a twisted theology that says in order for you to be healed, you must have faith that you're going to be healed or indeed have already been healed. And if you don't, it's your fault. Now, there's no doubt that there's a connection between the movement of God's power in prayer and our faith in Him. But never make yourself so big that you are the one that determines when and how God answers prayer. It's a dangerous thing. Right here we see a perfect example of someone who absolutely knew Jesus could, but had no faith that he would. But he knew that he could. I heard the late R.C. Sproul, um, R.C. Sproul, the uh, founder of Ligonier Ministries, uh, Presbyterian a theologian, evangelical, tell a story sometime back about a, a young man who he had, had met a few decades ago. His name was Harvey Watson. This was when R.C. had some other teaching uh, theologians and pastors had just founded Ligonier Ministry in western Pennsylvania. They were on a, a small campus outside of Pennsylvania. And Harvey was an ex- 
exceedingly bright, joyful, um, contagious young man. His, his love and commitment for Christ was obvious to everybody um, and sort of rubbed off on everybody. Um, R.C. said that he wrestled with an exceedingly severe case of cerebral palsy. He uh, had, a, had a, a good sense of humor about it. He said he would often laugh at himself as he was trying to navigate uh, the campus walkways during a J term. A lot of students who were um, either in college or in seminary would have a, a fall semester and a spring semester, but part of what some of the colleges and universities around there had asked with Ligonier's, would you offer something in January that we could offer credit for that students could go to, that they could get uh, some time in there. And so they did that. And he said, Harvey would often laugh at himself at, at how long and how difficult it was for him to navigate the sidewalks and stairs of the campus in winter with his cerebral palsy. That was back when we could laugh at ourselves as a society and human beings. He said, the second J term that Harvey came to, he came in and he said, hey, uh, Dr. Sproul, can I talk to you? He said, absolutely. He said, um, I need to ask you something. RC, do you think, do you think I'm demon possessed? And RC said, what in the world, Harvey? No, I don't think you're demon possessed. What, what on earth would make you ask such a question? He said, well, I've got some roommates back where I go to school. Um, and, and they're of the charismatic stripe, and they felt a real conviction to, to see the Lord heal me of my cerebral palsy and got together and prayed about it and came and laid hands on me and prayed for me, and they've been doing this for some time now, um, and I haven't been healed. And they told me that I clearly didn't have the faith that God would heal me. The lack of faith is what was preventing the, the healing power of God from flowing into my life. And said, R.C., they, they continue to pray and to... Um, to sort of chide me about a lack of faith until they got so frustrated that they said, clearly, I must be demon-possessed. And R.C. said, no, brother, you're not demon-possessed. Demons can't possess the space that Jesus resides in. He said, why don't we pray together? And R.C. prayed with him and for him. And that oppressive thought began to lift from his life. But I will tell you this. You, you and I are to place our faith in Christ, in His goodness, in His mercy, and in the overall providential will of God and leave it there. We're to pray with passion for what our hearts in Him desire, pray fervently, pray consistently, and God moves when and as He wills, always in keeping with His glory and our good our good. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. The beautiful thing is when Jesus teaches, touches the unclean person, Jesus isn't made unclean. The man is made clean. The leprosy departs from him immediately at the spoken word of Jesus. Jesus didn't have to touch him, right? We know this. We've already seen this. Jesus, the means by which uh, the, the living word of God, that God speaks all of creation into being. All he had to say was be clean. I wouldn't have touched him. I'm just not that filled with God in this. I'd have been like, hey, be clean. Right? But Jesus is giving this man what he hadn't had in so long, a human touch, dignity, 
Respect as an individual made in the image of God who's worthy of human interaction. He's made clean by Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, hey, don't, don't tell anyone, right? This is a common theme early in Jesus' ministry. He knows that he needs time to teach, to flesh out the implications of what it means to be the Messiah, what it means for God's kingdom to have been inaugurated on earth because the people's understanding was so twisted. He says, don't tell anybody, but go show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This is a very practical thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus could make him clean, but Jesus could not get him accepted back into his community, his family, his circles of friends, his faith community. For that, he needed to go to his local priest and let the priest fulfill the, Levit the, Levit the Levitical instruction and teaching that God required for disease like leprosy, then he would be received back in. And I hope you see the beauty of Jesus in this and the goodness of Jesus. Jesus isn't just there so that the man might be healed of leprosy and cleansed right in that moment. He's there to see the full integration of this man back into human community, back into relationships of love and care and friendship. Yet, Luke tells us, even though he told him not to say anything, the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. I want to point out a couple of things here. Part of why the news spread like that is because this man had something in his life that he had long ago assumed was simply a, a negative given, right? He had leprosy. The leprosy was going to continue to overtake him all the way until it cost him his life. And then with a, a word and a touch from Jesus, that all changes. The trajectory of his life changes. All that he had in mind for his future changes. It makes me wonder in a room with this many people, how many of you have things in your lives that you've just assumed are negative givens? They're never going to change. They just are what they are. Maybe you're like this man. Maybe you need a touch and a word from Jesus. Maybe Jesus would see fit in his glory and goodness to change the trajectory of your life, blowing away something that you had long ago assumed was simply a given negative in your life. This result causes all kinds of people who are in need to come both to hear Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. I wonder if we are people, both collectively as a church and individually as followers of Jesus, who are sharing the good news of Jesus intentionally with people that no one else cares about. This has always been a defining characteristic of genuine Christianity. And I will be honest with you, I, I got convicted this week as I was reading this, thinking I have been much better about this in seasons of my life than I am right now. 
Maybe there are people that you work with or people in your neighborhood who are just socially awkward. They're the ones everybody else kind of passes by or hopes they don't get stuck at a table with. Can I just say, friends, church, you are exactly the people that God intends to sit with them, to talk with them, to listen to them, to be the presence and the person work of Jesus before them, where your words and your actions begin teaching them who Jesus is and how he relates to them. We should specifically be the ones who are loving on those who are the most outcast, the most awkward, those who struggle the most. Verse 16 says, Jesus often withdrew. Even though the crowds chased him, he often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The the thing about this kind of habit of often withdrawing to places of solitude to spend time in prayer is that you want to do that. It's almost like filling up your tank with gas, right? Most of you, not all of you, I know for sure, most of you pull into the gas station before you're out of gas. Because it's easier to get gas when you're at the gas station before you've run out of gas than it is when you're walking or waiting on AAA to come bring you two and a half gallons for $45, right? It's when your tank is low that you pull in to get refilled. It's not till you wait until it's on red. Now, I know some of you, that's the way you live. If the gas light's not on, you're not concerned. We have people like that in our own family. When the gas light comes on, they think, huh, I should get gas in the next few days. (laughs) This isn't the only encounter Jesus has, though, that Luke includes specifically. Let's go in and look at one more. Verse 17, one day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Jesus is here in this town, and it basically turns into a pastor's conference, right? The teachers of the law are scribes and the Pharisees. You think about that as two categories. Teachers of the law or scribes were, in a sense, sort of official clergy types who were responsible for uh, maintaining uh, and passing down accurate copies of the law. The Pharisees were sort of elite laymen who prided themselves on keeping every single decree of the law. They were a powerful group, and they'd all come from different areas, from every village of Galilee and from Judea, the wider region, and Jerusalem. So it's quite a crowd here gathered to see what this Jesus is doing. And don't miss the latter part of verse 17. Let me just read 17 again, and then I want to emphasize it. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus. 
to heal the sick. Right away, Luke is pointing out the fact that the best that Judaism had to offer in that day had gathered to listen to Jesus and the power of God was not with them, it was with Jesus. It's not with them, it was with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. I don't know if you've ever carried anyone on uh, a litter in a trauma situation, but can I just tell you, people are heavy. Some people are extremely heavy. And even if you've got four guys, says some men, I hope it was four, what if it was just two of them? He's paralyzed on a mat, and they try to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. But they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. I remember going with a friend one night to uh, Texas Roadhouse in Waco. Uh, He actually wanted to go there. Staff will laugh at this. It's an inside joke thing, but uh, not me. It was his choice, but I was happy to go there. Um, But I said, it's going to be a madhouse tonight. At this time, he's died. It'll be fine. The wait can't be that long. Um, We pulled up there, right? And you could tell by the fact that there were cars parked all over the dirt and the grass beyond the parking lot that it was not going to be our night. People sitting outside, people playing games, people painting writing poetry, meeting with counselors. And that's just those waiting outside. We got to, the wait was an hour and 45 minutes. So we went somewhere else. But that's, that's the picture here. The house was full. First century Palestinian homes were not large. Almost all of them had outside staircases to rooftop areas where the family would kind of hang out. That was in a sense the living room area of the houses. People were crammed in there listening to Jesus teach and they were outside as close as they could get listening to him teach and they couldn't get anywhere in there. So imagine the struggle that it takes for them to get this guy up these stairs onto the roof. If you're curious, I want you guys, let's do this. How many of you live in a two-story home? All right, go home today, and if it's more than just you, I want you to carry someone else up the stairs. And some of you are going to have fun because it's just you and your spouse. Good luck. I know some of you are like, hey. Um, right? They're putting a lot of effort to get their friend to Jesus. Much more effort, I would say, than most of us, if I were guessing put into getting anyone in our life on a regular basis to Jesus. But can you imagine, one, you're the, you're the man on the mat being carried. You got to imagine there's a, a, li- a little bit of uneasiness in him. You know, as they get up to the top and one of them's going, pivot, pivot, pivot. And they're trying to get around sideways. Or maybe they get up and they're like, what if we just drop him over? Because we're almost there. Right? And he's paralyzed, so he can't use anything but his mouth. Maybe you're the friends wondering, we're not sure he's worth it. Right? He's kind of crotchety. 
They get him up there. They begin removing the tiles. Some roofs most were made by a combination of thatch and clay with cedar boards running across the top of the roof, but some of them were actually constructed with tiles. That word is used in this text. It's very clear it was a tile roof. They begin moving, removing tiles. Can you imagine sitting in there? Can you imagine sitting in there this morning when someone removes part of the roof, lets in that bird that comes in like twice a year, flies around in here? Then they remove another part, and then they lower him down. That had to be interesting. I imagine his prayer life skyrocketed. Doesn't say how they're lowering him down. Maybe they took their belts off. They're trying to lower him down. And there has to be a stir inside of people wondering what on earth is going on. In my first church, we had this uh, older woman named Edith who's in a wheelchair and her adult nephew would bring her sometimes to church. How do I say this? As you get older, you tend to become more gracious, more beautiful, or more grumpy and cantankerous. I won't say which path Edith had chosen, but at times in church, while I was preaching usually, because it had just taken that point to get in that service, she'd say, it's hot in here. <laughs> Turn down the air. Right in the middle of a sermon. Or I'd be preaching along, she'd go, I'm cold. <laughs> whatever, whatever you need, Edith. We're all here for you. I want to say this before I go on. Participating in the mission of God is not about your convenience. It is an inconvenient thing to live for someone else. Discipleship, as we find it in the New Testament, is necessarily inconvenient because you are no longer living for your own agenda, your own pleasure, your own life. You are living for another. And we, more than any people in history, have been steeped in the idea of church convenience. Where we have to beg and plead and remind and cajole people to, to come to church or to serve. Last week, you'll notice we had a, a group of urchins in here who aren't usually in here. That's because we had no one to teach them. Church after church, Julie who directs uh, LM Kids for us, our children's pastor, she met with a friend this week who said she had lost 25 volunteers from their children's ministry in the last few months. Why, why is this happening all across our country? Because we are people who have fully given ourselves to the idolatry of convenience, of believing if I don't get some kind of tingle down my leg when I'm serving at church, I must not be in the right position or at the right church. And can I just say, we deeply misunderstand what it means to follow a crucified Messiah when that is our attitude. When discipleship and service are optional, I really encourage you to press into the Lord and ask him whether or not you're actually a regenerate, born-again follower of Jesus. Jesus. 
Because to follow Jesus is to serve as Jesus served. You think it was convenient for Jesus to be mobbed by people all the time? It was exhausting. It exhausted him. Teaching and healing and answering questions exhausted him continually. And we see it throughout the ministry. He would pull off. He would get in a boat and leave and go to the different side of a lake. He had to have time to be refilled. We need to think very seriously about the idolatry of convenience in our own lives because it is eating many of us up completely. They lower him down and verse 20 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Don't you love that the first word that this man hears from Jesus is friend? Friend, friend. To be a friend of somebody is a special thing. To be friends, to have good friends is one of the sweetest gifts that God can give. Jesus says to him, friend, friend. He sees their faith. Don't make a a big deal about this. This is not that somebody else's faith can save someone else. It's quite clear that he is in this group of those who had the faith that Jesus could heal him. But they would not have been in, they would not have expected him to say what he said. So Jesus is using this as an opportunity to do more. In a sense, he's firing the first shot across the bow as the Pharisees and teachers of the law sit there. In a sense, this is his first step intensely toward the cross. Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law begin thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? How can, or who can forgive sins but God alone? Now listen, their theology is right here. Only God forgives sins. They're solid. Their application of it is wrong. Their theology is right, but they're missing Jesus in their presence. Jesus, God incarnate, is in the room with them. And they've got right theology and an inability to see God. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, in a sense, Jesus is making a very practical statement. When it comes to declaring things, to say, your sins are forgiven, is an easier thing to say because it can't be verified. Nobody knows whether behind it is the word and the power of God or not. It's much harder to say, be healed, because in that instant, it either happens or it doesn't. Am I right? I am right. All right. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Verse 24, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, reaching back to Daniel 7, this term also applied to Ezekiel multiple times, but in Daniel 7 specifically, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is saying, I said this on purpose. I said this on purpose. 
So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we find this. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, one appearing as a human being, is what Daniel was saying, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, that will never be destroyed. Jesus, this is Jesus' favorite term, 25 times in Luke alone, son of man is used, always by Jesus referring to himself. And it's not that Jesus is using Daniel or Ezekiel uh, to exposit or, or interpret or explain this. Jesus gives it a whole new meaning as himself being the place where heaven and earth meet together. He forgives the man his sins, but he also makes him whole. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. The mat he was carried in on is the mat he's carrying as he walks out praising God. He got more than he ever expected with Jesus. Not only did Jesus heal him of his paralysis, but he forgave him of his sins. And here sits the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. No joy, no life, no power, just buckets of knowledge and rules and regulations they place on themselves and the people. And the power of, Lord, uh, the, power of the Lord was absent from them, but present, verse 17, with Christ to heal. Alistair Begg said this, the, the religious establishment is sitting there powerless, powerless even to change their own ugly faces. Thank you, Sharon. Some of us do need to tell our faces that we're saved. Some of us do need to tell our faces, our personality, our countenance that we've been accepted by God in grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Because our heads may know it, but our, our physical demeanor, I guess, hasn't received the memo yet. Verse 26, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. R.T. France was a, a New Testament scholar, just died in 2012. Uh, spent most of his life in England and Nigeria, uh, taught at Cambridge and Oxford, as well as London Bible College, and taught in Nigeria. He has this great statement. He said, the concern of the scribes and Pharisees was to make the Mosaic laws applicable as regulations for every aspect of life. They sound like a fun group to hang out with, don't they? a concern that inevitably led them into conflict with Jesus' more flexible and creative attitude 
toward the law. Of course, Jesus had a flexible and creative attitude toward the law. It was his law. He was the one that gave it whatever authority it had. As the band makes their way back up here and out here and begins setting up to lead us in response and reflection, just as, as we saw through a number of different perspectives, these two encounters, we sit in this space together at this time and this place in human history with many different perspectives. We just saw Jesus make someone clean, forgive someone of their sins, and make him whole. Some of you, your sins have been forgiven. You're a child of God, but you've missed the part about Jesus wanting to make you whole on the other side of that. That sanctification and fullness of life is available to you in Christ, but it doesn't come accidentally. It doesn't come when we just choose to go on in life day in and day out as if we're just the same as everyone else. As disciples of Jesus, there should be a distinct difference between how we use our time and our money, between our attitudes and our patterns of life than the disciples of Biden or the disciples of Trump or the disciples of Muhammad or the disciples of nationalism or the disciples of uh, secular progressivism or the disciples of Buddha or anyone else. Maybe some of you are in here and you know your sins are forgiven and you've been on this path of sanctification. But maybe like me, you needed to hear again, hey, I expect you to represent my heart, my care, and my love for those most ignored by everybody else. Those most looked past by everybody else. Maybe some of those kinds of people work with you. Maybe they live by you. Maybe they go to school with you. It takes tremendous God-sized godly character if you're a student to live for Christ in school. The pressure is so high. But followers of Christ are not impressed by the popular crowd by the financially successful, by the biggest houses. We've got an eschatological view of life. We know that there's an end coming and a new beginning. Maybe in here, most drastic of all, you're one who needs your sins forgiven. That's never happened and you bear the weight of your own sin and rebellion before a holy God this morning with no guarantee of a tomorrow. And you need to throw yourself on the Lord who holds out this good news, this offer of salvation for anyone who will repent of your sins and turn from them to Jesus in faith. If that's you, I pray this morning that you would do that. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. When I finish praying, they're going to Pass the buckets. You guys can drop in your connection cards, your giving envelopes. Take a second and look at those connection cards. Look on the back of them. Maybe some of you are sitting here. I know some of us are just by the size. We've completely given ourselves to the, the God 
of convenience. And we will not serve and we will not serve long unless it's convenient. And we need to confess that to the Lord, be forgiven of that attitude and get back into the business of serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Wherever you are this morning, I hope you'll be honest before the Lord. He is good, he is right, he is just, and he is merciful. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful that you so moved in the mind and the heart of Luke and guided his thoughts and his hands so that we'd be able to read the words that we did this morning. God, words empowered by your Spirit, filled with your Spirit to teach us, to train us in godliness, to reveal to us your character, God, your heart for people just like us, broken, sinful, struggling. Move and stir in this place this morning. Lord, do not leave us the way we came in here. Lord, I I put before you now everyone who's about to give and those who've given throughout this week, Lord. God, demonstrating their faith in you, demonstrating in a tangible way their trust of you, your lordship in their lives. I pray that they would be blessed in every way you see fit, God. Take everything that's given and multiply it and stretch it. Lord, we know, we confess before you tonight that when we give, always on the other end of our generosity, by your grace and your power, our changed lives. May it be so today in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.